At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit. You forced me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hmm? Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 19 of Best in Show, the only podcast dedicated to the show rabbit and KV industry. As with every week, I'm joined by the brilliant and talented Bryony Smith from Kansas. By the way, our ARBA Standards Committee Chair. Bryony, how's it going in your neck of the woods? It was beautiful and cool today. I know we talk about the weather a lot, but we don't get beautiful and cool days in July in Kansas very often. So I actually just enjoyed some time playing with rabbits in the barn. I'm so jealous because it is Otherwise than that, super, super hot out here, and I'm sure it's like all over the news along with a lot of other disasters, but it's hot here. The whole Western states are burning. It's like summer, but it's it's very elevated. I'm still working at uh, the Alameda County Fair in the Bay Area. It's my last weekend here, and uh, today I wrapped up working at the livestock auction. So this year, the fair was very uh, different in that we didn't have a real fair in terms of like the public coming, but the fair still hosted, like I said last week. Um, a livestock show for the kids to be able to highlight their animals, both in small and large. So today was like the pinnacle event for the fair, and that was the livestock auction. So I got to sit all day on the block with the two auctioneers. And my job was a job invented basically during COVID because of what was going on last year where there were no fairs, and that was doing internet bids. So a traditional livestock show or you know a fair or a market show, we should, we could call it, at a fair would always have an auction that's live. You know, the bidders are there in the audience. They're, you know, it's it's lots of fanfare and lots of hype and lots of energy. And um, this year they included the opportunity for bids to come in from people that weren't actually there in the audience. And they did this last year too, but it was completely online. So it was interesting. I thought, well, this is like really smart because we're going to see people, we're going to see more opportunity for there to be buyers basically because they could really call in from, anywhere in the world, not call in, but, you know, submit their bids on the internet. And so they hired me today to sit there and monitor those. And as those bids would come in, I would tell the auctioneer, like, okay, this is the new bid. Look, look, this is the high bid right now. It's coming in from, you know, this person's name and, and it's, it's $14 a pound, say for a lamb. Well, I have to say it was actually a pretty stagnant day because I think in all, I probably took in about five or six internet bids that were winning bids mainly the people of the 200 lots that went through this auction today were people sitting in the audience. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. Like, you know, COVID for a lot of us 
forced us to use technology, especially the internet, to you know test old ways of doing things. And I have to say, I think that a traditional livestock auction is much better done in person. That that culture, that fanfare, that energy, you just can't get it online. And the highest bids today came from those in the audience. Do you have any uh, experience with auctions, Bryony, in, in, in your years of doing animals? Well, um, obviously, we um, do have some auctions in Kansas at our shows. I'm not aware that any of this area have switched to virtual um, we do, you know, livestock auctions, our rabbit meat pens in my home county are auctioned separately. Um, but, you know, of course, I've been to uh, auctions at national shows, auctions at conventions. And, you know, a lot of that seems to be kind of like impulse and people caught up in the front of it. You know, I remember um, at Reno last year, I was doing commentary for Best in Show. I couldn't go to the Dutch auction. There was a rabbit in there that I liked. And I asked a friend to bid for me. And I said, um, you know, go up to about 300. So later on, he sends me a message and he says, oh, you got it. I'm like, oh, great. How much? And he goes, oh, it was 425, but I knew you wouldn't care. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? I know I would sit there and just be like, hey, hey, if I can do 300, I can do 325. If I can do 325, I can do 350. It's just 25 bucks. That's all we're talking about It's 25 bucks now. You know, and I think that just excitement and competitiveness and impulsiveness is what really drives up those prices. I totally agree. And, you know, the people that were watching online in this, we call that a hybrid virtual auction because there was the option to do it in person or virtual. Most people did it, you know, in person, but, um, and they watched it live that people could sit there at home and watch the animals come up to the block and they could see the auctioneer, they could hear it live, you know, in, in, in real time. It didn't make a difference like people and i think i think too you know california was shut down for a lot longer than a lot of states so we're, we're no longer shut down we're in the bay area was one of the last areas to really open up people were dying to get out like they're like no we're gonna be there in person we're not doing this thing on virtual so it's just an interesting kind of take on on virtual stuff and we as we think that uh you know they've these things have maybe revolutionized and helped us which they have i mean here we are doing a podcast for example on, on rabbits um in some regards it just doesn't it, I mean, it just doesn't um, hold a candle to being there in person. So cool stuff. Um, and I, I can't wait to go home tomorrow. <laughs> I can't miss my, miss my home. I've, I've also become a homebody during all this COVID. So with all that said, we've had some good listener comments from our audience. And we want to remind everyone that you could submit uh, your comments to us and we would love to read them, you know, and we'd also love to hear if you've got any tidbits and information about uh, maybe even some suggestions about how we could continue on with our podcast and i'm going to start with one by the way that uh, happened here at the fair it was it was it was in person and brandy you and i both get some really good comments when we, when we travel but here at the fair i had a dad come up to me during during the the market lamb weigh-in of all things and pats me on the shoulder and he goes alan i love your podcast and i'm like you're a livestock guy what do you are you, you really want to say that, that that loud and he goes i love it i i learn something new every time i don't raise rabbits but there's universal learning here so it was super cool and then one day as he drove past me i was standing outside the last like i was he went he drove by me in his big truck and he rolled down the window and he had the podcast blaring it was the best just <laughs> it was just gave me chills it was pretty cool so a nod to all of our livestock listeners out there who don't have rabbits but you should or cavies but you should uh for listening in and, and realizing that uh, there's a lot more in common with all of us than than we are different so um a reminder to everyone you can email those suggestions comments um to our email address that's podcast best in show at gmail.com podcast best in show at gmail.com or of course you can drop 
comments on our Facebook post on the Rabbitry, which will continue to serve as our hub. So if you're not following the Rabbitry, make sure you do so on Facebook because that will uh, continue to be the link, current and past episodes, and lots more uh, to come. So the Rabbitry on Facebook, or you can email us. And please, by the way, if you're watching or listening on an Apple platform, Audible, or Spotify, whatever it takes to give us that five-star positive comment, please do. We really, really appreciate it. So, Bryony, uh, what podcast or what um, what comments do you have for us this this episode? Well, there was one on a post about Glenn Carr's episode from Alan Wheel, who is from the United Kingdom, and it said, "I absolutely love these podcasts. A great insight." So, it's really cool to know that these have reached across the pond. And yes, in case anyone is wondering, on the many lists of ideas that we have um, are some interviews with our counterparts in the United Kingdom. All the way over in the UK. Uh, the comment I'm going to read comes from uh, Daryl Clatterbuck from Donovan, Illinois, and he wrote in uh, to our email address, podcastbestinshow at gmail.com. He says, Just wanted to thank you all for your hard work on the podcast for the last three years or so. Since I discovered the joy of listening to podcasts, I have from time to time searched for podcasts related to Gravitz, of course, always with the same result nothing. How refreshing it was when I discovered Best in Show just a couple months ago. I have listened to them all, some more than once. No value can be placed on the great information your guests have shared, and I really enjoy hearing the stories from the days gone by. I have been an ARBA member since 1994, so some of those stories I remember witnessing in person. Thanks again for such a quality presentation, and keep up the good work. Thank you very much, Daryl. Um, and again, you guys, you can email us those podcast quotes and comments to podcastbestinshow at gmail.com and don't forget to continue liking and following and sharing everything that comes on the rabbitry uh, regarding our podcast before we get into the interview with our featured guest sandra white we will do a little bit of history recap we're going to do something a little bit different today um, we didn't choose a publication um, if you have been paying attention to fashion trends or anything like that at all or even music that's being played on the radio sometimes you might have noticed that y2k is now a big trend Sandra told us that she joined the ARBA again in 2000, and at that time, we were all preparing for the 2000 convention in Columbus, Ohio. It was called A Tale of Two Centuries. Tale was spelled T-A-I-L. And one of the interesting things I remember from that convention was that all of the assigned judges received an apron with a convention logo. It was like the state of Ohio and some clock faces, and I think maybe watch chains, and it said judge in big letters. I think those were in blue and red. And 21 years later, we still see a lot of people wearing those um, when they judge shows. So you might take a look around at the showroom one of these days and see if you can spot one of those because they're still out there. At that time, aprons were kind of a new thing. In the late 90s and early 2000s, the first time I remember seeing aprons or buying one was at the 1999 ARBA convention in Louisville, Kentucky. Before that, pretty much everyone wore show coats. And you do still see some people wearing those. They're lab coats. They're typically in white or blue. Sometimes kids still wear these for showmanship. But back in the day, um, before you know the late 90s, pretty much everyone had a show coat. Did you have a show coat, Alan? <laughs> I did own a shown coat and I only bought one because I was competing in the youth contest. So back in 99, I bought a show coat at the Airbnb booth and I, I think I only ever wore it once. Uh, otherwise I was exposed. It was my, one of my first conventions. So funny that you mentioned 99. We, we haven't talked about this in 
before, but that was when I was exposed to aprons. I, I don't remember what I was wearing at regular shows before that. I was fairly new, but it was pretty much an apron um, from then on, and I, I don't wear one. I mean, I don't, I don't think they're wrong. And when you go to the UK, we just talked about Alan Wheel from the UK. That's what they wear. It's not an apron community. Um, but very interesting uh, reflection on our past. <laughs> very cool. Yeah. Um, I actually own three. I got started a little bit before you did. And so I remember when I was a kid, like really wanting one because that was what everyone that was serious about their rabbits had. I mean, pretty much everyone at the show who was any kind of serious about their rabbits, they had a show coat. Their name was embroidered on the back, the arms, the chest, sometimes the back were covered with patches um, of clubs they belonged to, of conventions they'd attended, and, you know, some of them were pretty elaborate. Um, so I remember saving up and ordering one from the ARBA where the, you know, ARBA logo was embroidered on one side and my name on the other. Um, so I have that one still. And it's got some of my, you know, earliest convention patches. Um, I remember even my local club had a patch, the Sunflower Rabbit Breeders Association in Wichita. Uh, my second one, I won in the royalty contests. It says, 1997 ARBA Rabbit Queen. That one is was made to fit my 16-year-old frame, so I can still button it. Um, it's a little bigger than my first. Um, and then the third is one that I was gifted a few years ago. It had belonged to one of my mentors in Dutch named Wayne McKinnon. And I saw him at a show in Massachusetts, and he brought it along. He said, I thought you might like this because I thought, you know, you might like the patches on it. I'm like, are you kidding? I like this because it was your show coat. And so I have since re-sewn all the patches on and you might spot me wearing that at national shows from time to time. It's a little big on me, but that's kind of nice. Um, you can, I can put things in the pockets. It goes well over my clothes. Um, I wear it sometimes, you know, like if I'm cleaning cages at convention, I have to look kind of nice to go somewhere. I don't want to get shavings on me. I think that was kind of one of the pros of a show coat was that it covers more of your clothing. Um, an apron still, we get, you know, a lot of fur on our arms, even on our sides. Um, the show coat covered more of that, but at least for me judging, it's just, it's too restrictive in the shoulders. Um, and it's harder to maybe wear some wrist wraps under a show coat. Um, and then, you know, where the patches are, it gets kind of stiff. So I'm a little more comfortable judging in an apron, but I still kind of do enjoy the nostalgia of a show coat from time to time. Great reflection. That's very personal, and as you said, it's like it was like your spirit for those for those old timers to wear those show coats with all of their uh, patches and and pins and wherever they travel. It's it's pretty cool. And I gotta say, you're right about wearing a show coat. I have worn them a few times, and they do keep you a lot cleaner. You know, there's nothing like judging angoras on a Saturday, for example, and then washing your shirt, putting it back on sometime like on a Wednesday or a Thursday. And still picking Angora wool out of your armpit. <laughs> you yeah. wouldn't have that with a show coat. That is true. There are several times that I, you know, lint roll my shirts before I throw them in the laundry. And then maybe again, once they come out of the dryer. You know, we always often talk about uh, the diversity of talent in the ARBA and our industry. And we talk about that a lot on our podcast. And we're really fortunate as rabbit and cavy breeders to be surrounded by some of the most creative and passionate people in fields outside of rabbits and cavies. Um, and a few of those also happen to love rabbits and cavies like we do. And, you know, when I think about those really talented people, I cannot think of anyone who is as talented and brilliant on top of being 
um, as generous with her time, energy, and zeal uh, than our guest tonight. And that is none other than Sandra White, who of course is the editor of a magazine that we quote <laughs> on every episode. It's a magazine that whether you're new in rabbits or you've been in rabbits forever, it's a magazine. It's a publication that every one of us is excited to receive every two months in the mail as ARB members. So without further ado, we welcome the very talented, lovely, brilliant, and determined Sandra White to our podcast, Best in Show. Wow. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to, uh, to to be here with us tonight. And we know there's a little bit of a time difference and you're more of a morning person. Brian and I are not. So uh, when when you said you were available, we're like, okay, we're we're doing it that, at that hour. And I'm, I'm actually still working at my my county fair in the Bay Area. And I, I said to my boss, I got to sneak away. I've got to go record a rabbit podcast. <laughs> and she's like, go, go, go. And she's, she's really cool. She gets it. So, well, Sandra, thanks for taking time out tonight. And um, it sounds like you've had some some pretty bad storms down there in the Southeast today. So I think we're extra lucky to have you. <laughs> What's going on there in Georgia? Uh, we had uh, the remnants of a hurricane that came through and uh, we actually had a pretty severe lightning storm happening. And uh, one of our trees came down and the lightning struck. In fact, we had that sensation where your hair is actually standing on end. So we were fairly close to it. It's actually the closest I've ever been to lightning and uh, wiped the power out for about three hours. So uh, there was a point where I thought I might have to contact you and delay this, but I'm <laughs> very glad everything worked out. Power is on. We're good to go. And that tree is still standing. So it's a win. It's total win. You're a hell or high water kind of person, so you would have made it work. And if it was in the backseat of your car somewhere or, or at a Starbucks, we, we know what happened. Exactly. So, all right, Sandra, so let's start from the beginning. I want to know, and our guests want to know, like, tell us a little bit about um, your early stages. You know, we, we, we know you today, but how on earth did you become exposed to the ARBA and rabbits and KBs? And, and where did it all begin? You know, I, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, and it's funny because when I ended up, I started showing, I was showing alongside uh, Trudy Milburn, Jennifer Milburn, uh, who, you know, uh, is uh, the mother of Ashley Garza, Sweeney now, um, uh, Joy Wickwire, who was uh, later Joy Bramhall, Wenton Carlton. So all of these names that were just my buddies, my friends that grew up to be these wonderful people in the organization. And I was just a kid who brought home a pet rabbit with my best friend, Wendy. And uh, we heard about rabbit showing and we wanted to show our little mutts. And, you know, as you can imagine, it didn't last. Uh, <laughs> Wendy's, Wendy's mom very kindly said, if we were going to show, we were going to do it right. She formed a 4-H club and we promptly named it the Wild Gang. And we all picked our breeds and that began our journey. And it's interesting too, because Wendy lives in Montana now and she's still a member of the ARBA and she still shows. So uh, that's yeah. amazing. We're all such a, it's such a like recurring theme that we hear over and over again. You know, people get into this thing and they may take a little break for life, but they, they somehow kind of cycle back and it, sometimes it's a little player at a time. Sometimes it's life. So uh, we're so, so lucky it happened to you for sure. And that, 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 kind of um reminiscent of you know tucson it's really interesting what happened in southern arizona because if you go there today and i love going to arizona i love judging down there the shows are a lot smaller um but your story was not very similar or not very uh, dissimilar to like alan barr who grew, grew up in that area as well and he had some of the big industry uh you know women and men surrounding him which you know took him under their wings it was a different time but um you know it's it's a lot was going on down there and i'd love to take a look more into that at some point oh, as yeah. to, you know why do you know why what was going on in tucson so that southern arizona of all places when it comes to ag particularly rabbits and rabbits were huge back then and this was this was mid-70s into the 80s and our our big 4-h fair in pima county had 
two, 3,000 rabbits. It was, it was amazing. They had two full buildings just to house them all. Um, it, was, it was unbelievable how big it was. And even regular shows, Southern Arizona Rabbit Breeders Association, we would show there. There weren't youth shows, so we just showed an open. And uh, they were always packed. So I never knew of a time when rabbits weren't hugely popular. Um, my my sister showed uh, French Lops, Satins, and Rex, and I love dwarfs. In fact, to me, there were no other breed than dwarfs. And I I had my eye on a little sable point named Quincy that Joy Joy Wickwire at the time had. And I must have mowed lawns for an entire summer to earn the twenty five dollars to buy this <laughs> rabbit. And <laughs> when when I finally did, and I'm fairly certain I only got to maybe eighteen dollars, and my mom probably kicked in the rest, but. Uh, we went to her barn and she presented me with Quincy and then a little Siamese sable named Susie. And sable points were a brand new uh, variety back then, which shows you how long it was. <laughs> uh, and that was my start in in actually showing a breed. And what I really wanted was blue-eyed. If, if anyone knows me, I have this thing for blue-eyed rabbits, but you never saw a blue-eyed dwarf at, in our area. And uh, when one did actually come through, I remember seeing it in a coop on the show table. I was, I was too small to actually see into the coop. So I would bounce like I was on a pogo stick just to catch glimpses of this blue-eyed rabbit. And no amount of begging could get the person to sell it. So I had to go home without, but once I did get back in, then blue eyes were, were kind of my thing. That's, that's pretty cool. I can imagine <laughs> you doing this like little blonde hair, kind of bouncing up and down, trying to get a peek at oh, that elusive blue eyed white at the table. I wanted uh, that rabbit. <laughs> it's, it's so funny that you bring that up because my next question, um, you know, when I think of Sandra White and I think of rabbits, I think of a lot of things that are great. But when I think of you and rabbits, there, there are two things that I think of. And the first one being your fascination with the Vienna allele. So, which is, of course, you know, what leads to blue eyed white. So, what was the early fascination and what has still led you to that uh, love today? You know, I, I struggle with that myself. I, I have blue eyed cats. I have, I have a horse that has blue eyes. I just, I, I would really love to understand why I just have a fascination with developing blue eyed animals, but it, there it is. Um, I'm, I was fortunate that back then I just enjoyed looking at them, but once I got to study the gene and really work with it, uh, it's it's tricky, and you lose you lose traits while you keep that gene. So introducing a a full colored rabbit, for lack of a better word, will will enhance a trait to actually get you back to a better quality blue eyed. And and it's always just been fascinating to play that juggling game that when you actually do produce a decent animal that is competitive on the show table, to me, it was just twice as fascinating because they're just so tricky. Well, and it's not an easy pathway as you, as yeah. you've kind of alluded to, like it's, it's one of the hardest varieties because they function. I mean, they're a recognized variety in, in several breeds, but they really kind of function as their own breed in some regard. Don't you think? They do. They do. In one way it was great because you can really take the nicest type animal that somebody is selling because it has a white toenail and you can pop it right into your blue-eyed herd. And with the exception of, of a sable or a chocolate, which will tend to give a violet cast to the eye, uh, you can really use anything. Now, nothing can come back out of that. You never, you would never sell an animal that has a Vienna gene into somebody's colored program. And I don't care how many generations down the road it's buried, it's going to come out. So you, you can't do that. So I always looked at them as a one-way street, but you could get some pretty incredible animals in to help that herd along. So, you know, they, they did have that going for them. 
Well, let's talk about that because we love having some education on this podcast. So for those that don't understand, you know, blue-eyed whites and what you're talking about, basically blue-eyed whites an elusive, really difficult, often kind of inferior variety in terms of quality when you're talking about how they, you know, stand up to the rest of the standard in whatever breed. Let's, let's use dwarfs, for example, like they, they just, they struggle, right? So you take a blue-eyed white, you breed it to something superior, like maybe let's use otter or black, right? And then you get this next generation, which what do they look like in that F1 generation? You know, they, for, for lack of a better descriptor, they look like Dutch. They call them right. Dutch marks, potty color, party colored Vienna marks. There's, there's any type of, of moniker that they give them, but basically it's a rabbit with one Vienna gene and then a normal gene. And that just, that, that gives them blue eyes some of the time, but most of the time they, they look like Dutch. But, uh, when, but what you don't get is a blue-eyed white when you first what do that, you right? Don't get, you'll never get a blue-eyed white. If you do, <laughs> then you know you've got a blue-eyed hidden in that colored rabbit. So yeah, That's like the lottery. Get, exactly. So, you know, blue-eyed don't appeal to a lot of people because you do have to keep a lot of cage space for unshowable animals that are Vienna marks. And the Vienna marks always tend to be your best type animals. Go figure. But there it is. So of it's course. only until you take those Vienna carriers and breed them together, you'll have a yeah, 25% chance of popping a blue eyed out of that. But it, luck plays luck plays a part like anything else. Uh, if you've got a strong blue eyed already, you can take those babies back to the blue eyed and then you'll have a better chance. But I found that when you breed a blue eyed to blue eyed for too many generations, in the case of a dwarf, the fur would tend to get thinner and the shoulders would get longer. And I don't know why this, it was always the shoulders because you could have you could have a line from Coin Nelson that just had the spectacular type, and then over generation to generation, the shoulder would just get long, and so it it never made any sense to me. But that just that happened to be the fault of that that particular line. So I, I think it's I think it's <laughs> consistent with blood whites. I mean, I I don't I don't talk about my blood whites, but you know I don't I don't think you even know, but I have a little blood white program, oh. and I, I know I know. And the the single blue-eyed white doe I have looks she probably would do better in a Beverin glass. Let's just put it that way, okay? <laughs> so, but getting that in, what the job is is to you know like breed to something really good and then you know keep those Dutch marks F ones breed them together and anyway I'm still I'm kind of an F one, <laughs> so we're not gonna we're not talking about my blue-eyed white program tonight. Um, and so it's it's interesting. So you you said like you can take those F ones which look like Dutch. And yes. do you find that if you take litter mates of those F ones, do you take litter mates together to to increase your chances of pulling blue eyed white out, or do you find that that can sometimes actually work in the reverse? I absolutely will read litter mates to litter mates. And to me, I found that you're either going to get spectacular or horrible. There's <laughs> there's never anything in between. And I've actually found it an ideal shortcut to circumvent a lot of problems, pull the good ones out, and then I'll add a little bit of genetic diversity. But it really does tend to lock in traits, good or bad. So if you can select the good, get rid of the rest, you're fast-tracking your herd quite a bit. So if you would uh, you know, give some advice to people that are trying to raise blood whites, um, the proportion of your blood white project, would you say it's mainly blood whites, or are they made up a lot of Dutchmark Viennas that you can't even show? Um, well, if you ask me right now, I'm, I'm actually <laughs> in blue-eyed satin Angoras. So really, yeah, exactly. Which is harder because you know that there are no blue-eyed satins out there. I have so, never well, seen one. I have never seen one. They're not recognized. Uh, but the wonderful Brad Edmison is working on the COD for blue-eyed mini satins. Beautiful. And I, I don't know if you've seen them, but you know, Brad is a talented man and oh, they're spectacular. And, uh, 
he saw me eyeing them and I had just finished the project for the broken satin angoras. They were done. I had all these beautifully typed animals and no project. And you know me, I love a project. And we got to talking and he says, um, come to my barn next week. And he presented me with this. He didn't have a dwarfing gene. It was this monstrous blue eyed mini satin. And he says, here you (laughs) go. So he's actually, I've been working this project for two years and, uh, I've, I've got what I like. I have yet to pop a blue eye, but I've got some pretty spectacular Vienna marks. But I hope I hope that the ratio will go more from eighty percent, you know, Vienna marks to eighty percent blue eyed. But that's going to take some time because you know you can't. You, they may have the blue eye gene, but if they've got the other traits that are going to set the herd back, it's not worth it. Keep, keep the Vienna marks and keep breeding them and you'll pop what you want. And in my, my soul blue eyed, my uh, soul blue eyed satin Angora at this point has thin bone and thin fur and she has no business even being in my barn. I'll never breed her, but I just look at her and go, okay, one day I'll make some that will actually be decent. But until then, <laughs> she, yeah, <laughs> she's like the, the living, the living kind of, kind of pathway, but still not quite there never leave my barn but you know what one day though i have i have everything i need you just in blue eyes there's a lot of luck that happens too you can have a litter of 13 and there will not be one blue eyed in that entire herd so it's it's a genetic roll of the dice as you know well i can't wait to see your results because there's there's nobody that's a, a um you know, you're, not, you're no stranger to a challenge and that's when i said i i think of two rabbits when i think of sandra white and that's blue eyed white anything, particularly dwarfs and jersey willies. But the second, of course, and you, you touched on it, were are, are broken satin angoras. So as like one of the newest varieties recognized in the ARBA and in terms of angoras, I mean, I don't know when the last time previous to broken satin angoras, an angora variety was recognized. It's been a long time. So tell us your story when it comes to broken satin angoras, your pathway, what was your inspiration and, and, the, and, the, and the end result. I mean, it's, I know it's gonna be a little bit of a long story, but it's fascinating and, and they're oh. absolutely gorgeous. If, you, if judges are listening, you've probably judged them, but um, if you get a chance to get your hands on them, man, they have, I mean, they are the satin angora we've all read about, but never seen because they're dense, fine, and they are covered in gorgeous satin sheens. So oh, tell us about you. the pathway. I appreciate that. Well, I I actually started uh, doing some satin angoras, and I wasn't really able to find what I wanted out there. And I, again, a challenge. And I'm I'm blessed that I know so many fantastic people in the industry that when I wanted to take a French angora and a satin and build satin angoras from scratch. I was able to pull from the best herds. And again, I, I felt like I stood on the shoulders of giants that helped me get there to where I needed to go. And of course, when you breed a satin and an angora, you're going to get a bunch of normal looking rabbits. They have no sheen, they have no wool, but they have the carriers. So you just breed those together. Eventually you will pop a satin angora. Um, in my case, it took 128 babies to get one, just one. And uh, it was a little frustrating. I felt like maybe I had lived with black cats or walked under ladders or broken mirrors because my luck was just terrible. But I would get sheen rabbits, wooled rabbits, normal rabbits, nothing that had it all until I got a little blue named Booyah. And uh, I studied her every day around that three to four week mark because I knew she had sheen, but did she have wool? And she did. And I coated her out and I raised her up and I took her to my very first Angora Nationals and she won best of breed. And so I was pretty jazzed. And uh, from there, the COD for the Satin Angoras had been dropped. And this was up in Portland at the Arba Convention. And I sat in a uh, hotel room with Kelly Joe and Joyce. 
And we all pinky swore that we were going to do this. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit difficult here and say, I only want you to use my line. Please just use my line because we've got it working now. It's, it's right where I want it. We just need to add spots. So uh, we, we did and we all worked the plan and it, CODs are not easy. They take a lot of work. They take a lot of commitment. Uh, and I swore that I would not show an animal until we got those passed. And so that allows you to pour all of your energy into just the broken satin angoras. And uh, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of our team and incredibly proud of, of Kelly Jo. Uh, we were able to, uh, our first presentation, we got a unanimous pass and I was very proud of them. They, they were, they were gorgeous animals and somebody managed to take a little video of the, of Chris Zemney and she just went, oh. <laughs> and that, you know, just that little expression meant the world to me. And Chris was up judging them with the rest of the standards committee. And I just, it, it gave me chills. And there's nothing like being recognized by somebody that you consider a legend. And, oh, that was so good. And so the next year we brought our presentation again and we got another unanimous, which meant we passed. And it felt like a whirlwind and yet it felt like a lifetime because it was an everyday commitment, but I I'm, I'm proud that we did it. It is such a labor of love. As you said, and and by the way, I think I've shared with you, but I've bumped into former members of the Sanders committee that, and, and current ones that said some of the best presentations they ever got to look at were those broken sand angoras and they were blown away. So it was, it was an easy decision for them. It was certainly not an easy pathway for you and your team. But um, they they are fantastic. I said I've judged them like, and I still have a photo in my I have I have a, an album in my in my iPhone of you know great rabbits that I use as templates when I have to you know do uh, you know kind of looking back or learning or maybe even you know social media posts. And I have those satin angoras. I remember that one that you sent me that you had you showed me a full fleeced photo, and then you said, well, wait until you see what she looks like when she's clipped out. And I was like, whoa, there is like a commercial meat rabbit underneath that gorgeous coat of wool. Yes. Yes. What was, we what was it like to, to do bodies? I mean, how do you even combine? I mean, Angora on their own are challenging with wool, but then you've got to put a body on it. Like, wh- how did you do it? You know, I've, I, good genetics. Uh, and again, I, I was able to stand on the shoulders of giants, people that had these beefy, hard, hard-bodied satins. And I, I've never believed that just because an animal has wool, it can't have a body. I mean, they, they literally are dinner in a sweater. So they're an all-purpose animal. And you can't, you can't forego the body or the structure of the animal and just say, oh, well, it's got wool, so it shouldn't have a body. No, it absolutely should. So anything that didn't have that body went away even before the coat came in. So they've, they've had it. And I'm, I'm proud that they've had it. And it's something that you really have to hang on to because it does go fairly quickly. Yeah. And like you said, you know, you didn't compromise. And we've talked about the COD process on this podcast because every week I'm joined by the standards committee chair and she's, you know, really dedicated to the process. And, you know, one of the ways that you can go about a COD and, and getting a new variety or breed recognized is in a group setting. And, and that's what you guys did with those brokens. And I love what you said that, you know, when you guys sat down, like, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it this way. And that's to keep your line, the one that you had been working on. Yeah. Um, because what does that do? Like, if, you know, in a group setting, you don't have to use names or anything in the past, but in your mind, what could go wrong if you're working with a group on a COD on getting a, a variety or breed developed? What could go wrong if you don't adhere to? What were your fears if you don't adhere to, say, one particular line? Um, can you explain that? Yeah. Lack of consistency. 
Um, and if it doesn't matter if you have three people working on it that are each working their own plan, they may have they may have their own group of rabbits that are good, but when you combine it for a show team, they're going to lack consistency. And the one thing the standards committee is looking for is, are you getting replicas of each of the animals? Do the juniors show promise of becoming what the seniors are? Do the seniors look consistent in type, in structure, in, in fur consistency, in wool density? So there may be a good line over here, but if you're kind of throwing it all into a pot, it's not going to get the results that you want. So we had to pick one line that we felt was the strongest and then work that line. Otherwise we were going to run into problems. And I'm grateful that they chose mine. And I'm happy because it was a line I knew what to work with. And every every month or so when the wonderful Josh Humphreys was heading towards Colorado, I would pack up rabbits and go send them this way. Here's more for them. And they were they were wonderful enough to just incorporate that into what they currently had. And because, because we adhered to the plan, we had the success. Well, and what's really cool is, and you said it kind of briefly, but I want to underscore the fact that you didn't start with satin angoras. You actually made a satin angora breed before you then even went on to make a brand new variety for the satin angora breed. I mean, yes. you literally started from ground zero. Yes. My satin angoras didn't have a drop of satin angora blood in them. That's true. It's incredible. <laughs> incredible. Well, Sandra, we could talk about rabbits all night long and you have certainly made your mark and conti- we'll continue. We're going to see these blue-eyed white satin angoras one day. I know it. Um, but your mark on this industry and the ARBA is in so many ways. But when I think of Sandra, I think of all of the things you've done behind the scenes in, in media and publications. So um, before we dive into what what you've done and what you've given to us. Um, tell us when you were learning about rabbits, wh- whether it was back in the day or throughout your period, or maybe up until now, what publications and resources, you know, did you turn to for information that, you know, probably inspired you to do what you do today? You, you know, what's interesting. Um, I, other, other than just word of mouth and hanging and hanging out with these legends, um, Bob Bennett's story guide to raising rabbits was what I picked up in a, in an old thrift store. It was, it was a publication from the nineties and it was this old dog ear issue. And I think I bought it for 10 cents. And when I got back in the rabbits into 2000, I picked it up and I went through it cover to cover and was surprised that there were all these new breeds and, you know, but it was, I read it cover to cover and it was my go-to reference. And then after that, when I had just absorbed the information, I joined the ARBA, which actually I rejoined because when I went off after I graduated high school, I had let my membership lapse and never, never do that. Keep your membership current, please. But um, I had rejoined and it was interesting and kind of surreal years later when Bob Bennett contacted me and asked if I would write a forward for his upcoming updated book. And I'm positive he had no idea how much of an impact that little dog-eared book had on me rejoining the ARBA, but he probably does now, but I thought that was kind of cool. That's so cool. And Bob Bennett's been talked about on this podcast before. Uh, Glenn Carr, we interviewed in, in episode 17 and 18, and he mentions uh, Bob Bennett and his early influence back in the day. In fact, I'm sure you know this, but he at one time was slated to be the editor of, of the Domestic Rabbits magazine. <laughs> That's yes. crazy. Yes, he told me. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. So, um, so you get back into rabbits in the early 2000s. At that point, are you living, by the way, in Southern California in the L.A. area? I was, yes. Uh, we were actually at a county fair with uh, my, my son, Brandon, and I said, oh, 
we need to go into the livestock area. And I started talking about rabbits. And I said, when I showed there were thousands and thousands of rabbits and you're going to be blown away by all the different breeds. And I just, I was pumping it up. And then we walked into the tent and there was about 15 animals. Oh my and gosh, wait, wait, wait. Tell me what county fair in California was that? Orange County. Oh, phew. I thought it was LA because, I, you know, I... <laughs> LA County Fair was just as disappointing as what happened in Orange County, but I ran the small animal department at the LA County Fair the last few years, like it was just running into the ground. And we had about 15 animals. I don't even remember what 15 yeah. here I had, but they don't even have competitive livestock anymore. It's whatever it's yeah. the subject, but okay. Orange County Fair. So, wow. so you go there and there's like 15 rabbits. So 15 yeah, rabbits, you yeah. how do you explain I, as your son? Uh, well, he was a little puzzled, um, but what they did have was a blue eyed Netherland dwarf. Hello. <laughs> oh, that's all it took. Okay, okay. So it's not a lot of took. And I contacted the lady. She was actually willing to sell it to us. And uh, we we came home with this blue-eyed Netherland dwarf and uh, went to a couple of shows. And we met Tim and Donnell. And uh, they were actually one of my first volunteer projects. Um, they were in the process of putting on the 2004 ANDOC National Show um, in uh, Plymouth and asked if I could do their catalog. And back then, catalogs were the only way that people advertised or supplied information for a show. I mean, nowadays we have Facebook and so on, but they were really a big deal. So I I designed their catalog and then went to the show. And from there, I ended up being editor of the Dwarf Digest, and then that blossomed into a few other publications. So that's kind of my segue into marrying what I do for a living with what I love to do. That's that's pretty good. They saw you and they're like, whoa, we need one of those. Like, <laughs> don't let her leave the building without getting her phone number and email because she is a valuable, valuable asset. There's a lot of projects we could we could use with her. Right. My gosh. I like, think that's what Tim thought. You know, you're not you, leaving. Oh, you're doing oh, this. For sure. <laughs> yeah. So actually, that was my next question. You know, what inspired you to become, you know, your brand new rabbit breeder? What inspires you to become involved? Because at your level, even when you started, it sounds like in rabbits, like, you took on some big projects. You were working on a, on a national show catalog for... Mm, one of the top three breeds in the country and you're brand new back in rabbits. So um, what inspired you to volunteer and to become involved? You know, I, I hope it doesn't sound selfish, but when, when you step up and volunteer, you get a front row seat to the very best that everything has to offer. So you put your hands on the best, you talk to the best, you just, you, you have opportunities and you learn. And to me, I've always been a kinesthetic learner, so I need to put my hands on something. So doing a catalog, cutting out a rabbit, uh, figuring out what is a good ear, what's what's a good animal to showcase on the cover of, of it. They're all learning experiences for me. So I, I learn every bit as much by actually doing this stuff. So it seemed like a natural progression to offer my talents and then learn in the process. It's brilliant. And what is I think the FFA motto is learn by doing. And that's yeah. exactly what you're doing, right? Yep. I mean, and I think a lot of us would, would probably agree with that. Like, yeah, just get your hands dirty, you know, yeah. dive right in. And you were going to be, you were going to be accessible to, or they're going to be accessible to you in, in ways you would have taken decades to, to meet these people. Um, so let's talk about your media because in uh, your media career and what, what background did you come from before rabbits when it came to profession, you know, b- between college or high school when you got out of rabbits and got back in um, that you learned about, you know, what you do? I, I can't even describe what you do because it's so amazing. But <laughs> tell us, like, yeah. career, career career, and, and education. What, Thank what you. was it? What is- I, you know, I, I uh, my background was in communications, but never really in publishing or media. And it actually wasn't until I, I, I actually taught martial arts for years. And 
was tasked with putting together their newsletter. And I knew absolutely nothing about designing a newsletter. So I rolled up my sleeves and I tried working with programs. And then when there was an opportunity, I, I was able to go to a conference and there's, there's all of these luminaries there, uh, these kickboxing legends and martial arts legends. But all I really wanted to talk to was the guy who did the magazine and I cornered him and he was kind of flattered that this blonde girl was just, you know how I can be. I can press you for information and, you know, this is what I want and you need to show me how to do this. And he just it was, I think, a little intimidated, but we struck up a friendship and he lived in Florida and I lived out in Southern California, but he really was instrumental in just walking me through what to do and how to do it. And so with my communications background, I was able to apply what he did. And then uh, one day he had the opportunity to move out to Southern California, and then he became my husband. <laughs> I did not know you were talking about the Randy oh, Hall. Wow. I'm talking about Randy Hall, my Randy. Yeah, I, oh you know, whenever you see something exceptionally cool, chances are he's the one who did it. Um, he he was that person that walked me through situations and got me to see something through a critical and artistic eye and showed me how to do it because his his background is not only not only communications and, and and publishing but it's art he can draw he can play anything he just he's disgustingly talented and uh he he has no idea actually how good he is but um I was able to hack my way through publications and he would course correct me along the way and then some point I wasn't terrible and then one day I I got good and uh I am eternally grateful to him because he's really only a, hey, Randy, away when I have a problem. And he's always there. Awesome. I love that. Um, so it's, you know, and, and he is he is that, that voice, that face, that face that we don't often think about, but his name is on the DR. And as you just said, he is a, a big part of, of the beauty and what we are so lucky to have um, yep. in the area, in our industry. Um, and you're a lucky girl. <laughs> I really am. I really am. So with all that said, and, and you, and Randy's going to be tied to this too. Um, I don't even know how to ask this question, but what the heck are you responsible for when it comes to the ARBA today and over the years, you know, what have you done and what do you continue to do? And a lot of us know, but I have to ask you because I want to hear it in your, in your words and, and please don't be modest. Okay. Um, wow. It, it's easier to tell you what I don't do. Um, uh. Oh, well, you know, I, I do the DR. Um, I've done the handbook, uh, the guidebook, the SOP, any virtual media, any of the photography, any anytime we see a job that needs to be redone or done, I take it on. So uh, Eric just kind of calls me an extension of the office. <laughs> and I'm, I'm eternally grateful for Eric. He's just he he. He's he's the most wonderful person to work for and with, and we we have such a wonderful mutual respect that you know we we know where our lanes are, and if he knows he's out of out of his lane, he'll punt it to me and vice versa. And so together we've really been able to craft something that I'm incredibly proud of. I'm pretty sure that the love comes from both sides. <laughs> so he's he's also eternally grateful to ha to have you as as so many of us are to to be behind the scenes. So with convention guide, uh, convention catalogs and guidebooks, the yep. SOP, which we're going to talk about in a second, and of course, our amazing Domestic Rabbits magazine. But I, I got to say, like, my first exposure to you was actually before the DR. It was um, it was the Neville and Dwarf guidebook, which you revolutionized. Um, 
tell us tell us what first of all when was that when did you take on the the andrc's guidebook what did you what was it and then what was your goal what was your end game when you took on that we did it oh well it was at the lancaster pennsylvania andrc national oh i want to say 2005 or 2006 uh and the guidebook had been bandied around as needing to be done. It hadn't been done since the mid-90s. And Donna Wall did a fantastic job. But again, you know, the, the Donna Walls and the Oren Reynolds of the time, what they did with what they had, I could not do. I could not do. Uh, without desktop publishing, I would be lost. So having said that, she did a phenomenal job with the tools she had to work with. But now we had all this media where we could really do it justice. And I didn't want to do it alone. I needed someone who could organize it, and that person was going to be Donnell. And I, I only wanted to work with Donnell because she'll get it done. And she she crafted the articles. I gathered the pictures. And we really wanted to give examples of each one of the varieties, front, back, side views, any any anomalies or, or unique uh, attributes to the breeds, point color and hemis, the different the different colors of the hemis, just everything that we could. Uh, an example of good and bad as you walk through the SOP point structure, we wanted to make it as comprehensive as possible and eliminate a lot of the stuff that wasn't breed specific. So our first task was to get rid of the basic care of rabbits because we assumed you were going to get that from the Arba handbook or guidebook. Um, and this was just how to raise a better Netherland dwarf. And uh, it took us a good two years to collect the pictures and, and to, to craft it. And uh, it, 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 did, it, it was uh, received quite well. I was happy. Oh, are you kidding me? It's in its day, even today, it was, as you, I didn't know this backstory that you both went into this. I mean, first of all, you're working with icons in yeah. in the Dwarf Club. That pairing is is a magic pairing. And then you've got this, you know, zeal for, you know, photography and, and presentation. You put together this guidebook. And for anyone that's not seen that guidebook, you have to see it. You have to buy it. That's a reason to be a Dwarf breeder. Um, <laughs> the, the color pictorial view of these rabbits was unlike anything I mean, in by the way dwarfs recognize a lot of varieties more so than most other breeds and you had a representative of all of those all of those varieties down to like you know tan and which we don't see even at a regular show we have to go to convention to see it, the tan variety in a dwarf and you had them all beautifully photographed and represented there um in a book that on an advanced level like you said i love that you just said like it was beyond just like hey when do you put the nest box in kind of thing uh how many days does it take for a doe to, you know, start pulling hair kind of thing. Uh, it was and is incredible. Um, and I remember when you took over the the guide or the newsletter for the, the Dwarf Club, that wasn't too far after, correct? Yes. And yes. I remember getting the first copy and going, holy, you know, blankety blank, this this lady needs to be doing the Domestic Rabbits magazine. And it wasn't far, far after that, that that you took that on. But before we talk about the DR, let's talk about maybe your your latest project, that we all know about, and that's the SOP. And I believe there's an interesting story behind the uh, the 2021 to 2025 ARBA connection. <laughs> so you want to share that with us? It's it's funny because our very first big job for the ARBA was the SOP. And Eric, Eric had become executive director at that time, and he was trying to do all the publications. And we talked previously about knowing where your lane is and where it isn't. And his lane was definitely not that. And he handed us this 
this document and said, please help. I've got to go. I, I've got to send it to print. I don't know what I'm doing. So we spent several months just putting the SOP, the inside into a format that could be edited by people down the road. And then as a reward, we, we were able to tweak their cover a little with the promise that our our next thing we could design the cover, which was the 2016 issue with the coins dropping from the scales. And the SOP has be kind of kind of become our thing where we we design the uh, the cover to make it unique and relevant to what's going on within the ARBA. And uh, we had come up with the cover with the scales and the coins as a representative of the value of the rabbits. And uh, that was actually Eric's idea. And then we took it and built it into fruition. And uh, the the ARBA just to me was at its pinnacle. Uh, I, I love Josh Humphreys. I love working for him. And he, he gave us the opportunity to just run with our creativity. And we never wanted to embarrass him. So we would just work overtime to just go over and above to create something spectacular. So I, you know, we couldn't have been happier. So going into the 2020 SOP, um, we had already designed the cover back in 2017, 2018. It was going to be, you know, the sunrise over the dawning of a new ARBA. The office had moved. Just things were going great. And we were just, we, we could not have been happier. And then the pandemic hit. And then our HD hit. And it just, it, it felt like the rug had been completely pulled out. And you know, talk about the wind just being sucked out of your sails. It it was a tough year. It was tough to watch our friends struggle with RHD. It was it was tough to watch rabbit shows. I mean, we we didn't know what was going to happen, and there was just so much uncertainty. And in the middle of that, here's the poor standards committee tr- struggling to get the book out, and us struggling to come up with something that no longer felt even relevant anymore. And so we never even discussed the cover until almost the final weeks going into print. And then we thought we really need to do this. And, and I think I was out gardening one day when I just got this concept of, you know, the, the earth as represented in a broken mini Rex. And I just, it just kind of hit in a picture and I called Eric and I said, I've got it. This is it. And he says, that's it. He goes, do it. And I said, I'm not talented enough. That's not, that's not my lane. And I said, but you know what? I know whose lane it is. And called up Amanda Olson from Ugly Rabbit Apparel. And I said, girl, I, I've got something for you. It's a challenge. I know you can do it, but it's going to be spectacular. And I told her what was in my head. And God love that lady. In one weekend, one weekend, she ground out that cover. And by Monday morning, she had the KV and she had the rabbit. And ah. Oh, unbelievable. So, you know, it went from pandemic to, is there even going to be a future to a cover that just, it gives me chills, the work that she did. And I'm, I'm incredibly proud of the talented Amanda Olson because she, she saved that cover. Well, I love it. And I didn't know the story behind it. And it's very fitting for the time that we just experienced, you know, the year, year and a half where the world stood still and, and, and rabbits even more so because of RHD. Um, and I think that the Airbnb advertises this, this, um, standard by saying, you know, it's, it's art and science combined and it's, it's beautiful. And, and that's really what we do. Don't you think? It is. It absolutely is. So it's the combining of both the artistic flourish on, on the standard that really makes a rabbit a rabbit. And I'll tell you from like my, my cage vendor background, I, because I work for KW and I, I run a lot of those vendor booths. Uh, there isn't a show this year that I've attended that we didn't sell out, that I didn't have to tell about 30 people at the end of the day. I'm so sorry, but we've already run out. So 
um, people are into this and they are loving it and appreciating it. And, and who doesn't love a standard year? You know, when the standard comes out and you're like, oh, I got to buy a new one. It's, for me, it's never like, oh, I got to spend 20, 20 plus dollars on the standard. It's like, no, I got the new one. Like it's got, it's all updates and it's beautiful and it's revolutionized. And there's so many advents in this thing that, that yes. we've never imagined, we've all dreamed of, but it's a gorgeous SOP. And by the way, your name's not anywhere in that. I was, I'm thumbing through it right now. Like I don't see it on there. And that's the, this is the magic and Sandra White and Randy Hall and, and the, the pair of you guys that, work so dedicatingly on these projects that we don't even realize that you're behind. I mean, I do, because it's, it's, when I look at it, I'm like, oh, that's, that's Santa right there. That's, that's Randy right there. <laughs> it's got your stamp on it. But um, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about everything that you do. And you said, you know, when you're out of a project, you're like, Eric, what can I do next? I mean, that, you know, you live by doing, you, you perfect by doing it. So thank you. Yep. Thank um, you. You know, I asked you already, but I'm, I'm going to ask you maybe again, and you, you gave a, a, a nod to Bob Whitman, but when you're, when you're working now, do you look to other animal magazines? Um, because there are a lot of them out there. I mean, I work a little bit in the sheep industry and in the livestock industry, and I see their publications and yours are better by the way, but there's some, there is, maybe they had more money behind it that they could afford to put like color to a magazine first, because you were the first one to put color to the DR, for example. Um, what, you know, do you, do you look at oh, those, those other magazines, those other publications made by animals or elsewhere as inspiration? Or is this just really from your creative genetic makeup? I, I actually try to avoid the, the, the other publications. Um, I, I actually do enjoy reading Fur and Feather, but not, not so much for a design element, but just because it's interesting to see what's going on across the pond and the, the, differences in our breeds uh, but my influences actually they 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 kind of come from our membership and i i know that kind of sounds hokey a little bit but you know there are um i i get on facebook and i see what people are doing with their art or with their photographs or with their ideas and and it's it's inspiring to me when when you see the new cover of the new dr that's coming out and uh and and you see the picture of faith you know you just she she took that picture she sent it she made my cover she's she is it um but around that the entire color palette came from her picture and the inspiration from the design came from the picture she sent so she was my inspiration for the entire mini lop article and it's similar to that with most of with most of the layouts where they'll send a picture and I'll develop a design around what I know of that person. Like when when Brian needed the article on Dutch, you know, I I gave it kind of a 40s vibe because she's you know, she's got that vintage thing going and she she really likes classical classical design. And so I pulled those colors and those elements because I knew it would pay homage to her as well. And I, I try to take and honor the people who are doing an article because they're, they're working so hard to donate their time. And I, I don't take that lightly and I want to honor them in, in the best way that I can, which is just going all out and giving them a kick-ass design. That's incredible. I mean, you not only take and make every issue of the domestic rabbits magazine unique, but then you also make it personal based off of, you know, what you're highlighting or, or chose to highlight or what your contributors have decided to, to, to highlight in that issue. And it's just, it's, it's remarkable. You've, you've transformed this thing. You know, when I grew up in the nineties and the early two thousands in rabbits, you know, we had a great domestic rabbits and it was still one of the best magazines or newsletters that any animal organization had, but it has gone from a, a, 
you know, a portrayal of, you know, an, a late portrayal, by the way, because there was like old weather reports from from districts that were like, okay, well, gosh, we're talking about the hot in the summer now where we're getting the DR in, in, in November. Um, you've taken it from that to a resource. Like it's literally a book of education. If you're learning about rabbits and you're, or cavies and you're maybe just getting into this or whether you're a veteran, like there is something to learn in every single one of those domestic rabbits magazines. And you've pulled from the, the hottest contemporary, you know, most current people in our industry to contribute. Uh, it's brilliant. It's not just text. It's not just photos. It's not just pages. It's, it's hot. It's brand. It's, it's what's going on. And it's, it's brilliant and beautiful and presented because you and Randy have been behind it. Um, so we speak about the domestic rabbits magazine. Did you ever imagine that, that you would be behind the wheel of that, uh, when you first got into rabbits? Oh, never, never. And I actually do remember getting uh, the DR back in the 70s, too. And Oren was actually the, the editor then. And, you know, I love I loved the articles and the and again, for for what he had to work with in his time, he did an extraordinary job. And the content in there is above par. And I to me, all I really did was give the DR a facelift. And, you know, if I were to take one of the old DRs that Oren did, I wouldn't change a word of the content. The articles were spot on in so many cases. I would just make them pretty. And so, you know, it would it would pay homage to his work because he really was an extraordinary person. And I I'm sad that I've I've had a few phone conversations with him back in the mid 2000s. I never met him in person. And I love that because he feels like this larger than life myth. But I also know that there's an extraordinary man behind there, and I dearly wish I would have gotten to know him. He had so much forethought, and and Glenn Carr talked about that in um, the last episode, episode 18 of this podcast, where he talked about the be the beginning stages of the Domestic Rabbits magazine and you know his ideas behind it and his adherence to it, and and then too, as you just said, you know the technology wasn't there. The guy literally made the thing on a card table, like cut out pieces. And then, you know, I, I can't even imagine. And and then you've taken it to a whole other level. And by the way, the, I think the content is, is better and I'm not by any way disrespecting his work, but, um, but you made it pretty. And, you know, when we talk about learning and education, when someone is presented with material in black or white or in a pictorial, beautiful, colorful example of, of the education that's being presented, there's like, you stop for a second. There's, there's like a stop dead your tracks and like you actually want to dive into it and, and, and look at it and learn more. And I think that we're a more educated ARBA rabbit and cavy breeder because we want to stop and look at it because it's beautiful as well as accurate and contemporary. Oh, uh, and that's your, you. that's your work. No, I, I truly mean that. Um, because that was actually one of my the, the goals when I first took on the role of, of editor was the first our first request was this needs to be all color. What can we do to make it all color without the additional cost of the membership? And we were lucky that we have a lot of print brokers that uh, we've used throughout the years. We were able to broker a deal that was no other no cost, but it gave us full color. And boy, once once that happened, you know, we knew the best way to tell the ARBA story was with color. And we had this fantastic content, but, you know, the best way to get an article read was a catchy layout and lots of pictures because most people are visual learners and having good and bad examples in front of you is, you know, what's the best way to show what a good top line looks like, what's proper ring color and definition, you know, having everything side by side really illustrates to the member what they're looking for, what they're trying to learn. So to me, having a color magazine was the biggest game changer for us. 
it's so true. I mean, when I opened a recent issue, uh, there was an article by Dr. Mina in Hawaii about internal parasites. And I'm thinking, well, I've, I, I, I know about internal parasites, right? Like I've been there. We all had pinworms, right? But the beautiful portrayal stopped me so that I read more about it. And I was just judging actually with Bruce Ormsby in Indiana. And I, I, I went up to him like, dude, your article on balance was bomb. And you know what he said? Oh, that was all Sandra. <laughs> I'm like, okay, yes, no. Sandra made it. Sandra did make it really pretty. But what he said was what we've all been saying behind the scenes. And it's never been written like that. And I said, no, I'm not knocking you, by the way. I'm, but I'm saying no, like, no, it was no. a gorgeous he article. But... No, no, he gets the credit. You will not get an argument from me. No, no, but you get credit because he's like, well, she put the diagrams in the foot. And yeah, so that it was that pairing again, you know, just like in your beginning, that pairing of, of, of art and talent and creativity mm -hmm. with an expert's view. We've never had that before. And if we look back in the ANDRC, the Dwarf Club, that early pairing happened with you and Donnell and Tim and, yeah. and the Dwarf Club. Um, and it's something that you continue to adhere to today because obviously it's a magic that, that clearly it works, right? It does. It does. You know, the DR is a reflection of the best of the membership. When you have a Bruce Ormsby, you know, and that article, actually, I was writing for him and he says, I love the magazine. How can I help? And I said, you did a judge's presentation years ago on balance. I want that. And he just kind of blinked twice. And I don't think I was even home from the show where it's and it's in my inbox. And wow. I, how, how cool is it for someone like me to get to parse an article from Bruce Ormsby pick it apart and go, I think this is what he meant. Here's a picture. Let me put it against this diagram. Okay, Bruce, did I get it? He says, yes or no, move that. And you know what? Learning experience for me. I love it. So I, I get to break down an article and figure out what somebody, somebody means by it and how best to communicate it to the membership. So again, I have an awesome job, but it's because of people like Bruce who put their trust in me to make them look good. And it's just, it's the coolest thing. <laughs> Well, you nailed it, and, and so did he. And actually, that was one of my questions, and you just kind of touched on it. <laughs> when you said that by the time you got home, you had the article in your inbox. Yeah. So I think I'm going to jump the gun on the next question, but you know, what is, what is your, one of your biggest challenges when you put together this every issue? Is, uh, it, is it getting content? You know, it, it can be. Um, I have... I have a group of people that are fantastic. I, the JJ Veals, Alfred Mena, you know, Brian E. The, I can, Kathy, Debbie Vigue. I, I can count on articles from them in almost each, every issue. And I can take, I can take those reports and actually turn them into meaty articles. I mean, Brian E's education committee articles, those are articles. They're just wrapped up in, an, you know, education 101 format. But my God, you know, when you look at the Agudi article that she did or, or the article on color dilution, you know, it's, it's, educational and well thought and she's such a fantastic writer so i'm blessed that i have people like that that are my regular submitters uh, and those i really can't dive into those until uh, my article deadline which is the 10th of every other month so i don't even know what i'm getting until then the feature articles i'll generally work on two to three issues ahead because they do take a little bit longer because it's it, it's a volunteer job and it's a labor of love. So you're approaching someone that you know is at the top of their game and you're asking them to take time out to write an article. And they may or may not have pictures to support it. Um, they may or may not have time. Um, some folks 
while they are extraordinary and extraordinarily learned, they're not as willing to put pen to paper and actually write an article. So we've learned over the years to adapt to that situation. I've actually done phone interviews and then built articles from those. Um, or in, in the case of Faith, she just gives me this beautifully written article that I, I just can't wait for you to get this new issue. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. She's, she's really hit the nail on the head with the mini lots. And I'm just, I, I can't say enough wonderful things about her. But uh, generally, those articles will take a little bit longer to do. Uh, so it takes about a month to construct a magazine from deadline to print. But the features do take a bit longer. I can't wait for that next episode or that next issue. Um, you know, and, and it's a breed like Minilop, which they've been around since like 1980, right? But there's always yeah. something to learn about these breeds, especially when you get, you know, the contemporary hot faces behind the scenes that, that are raising those rabbits and making beautiful ones that we see on Facebook. And yeah. then we get to learn from their perspective um, in the DR. I can't wait for that, that, that issue coming up. So you already kind of touched on it uh, just now, but tell us what the heck does it take? Uh, beginning with the deadline on the 10th. I don't even know anymore. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't contributed in a while, but um, what does it take to put that that DR together by the time you sit down and the time that we all receive it in our mailboxes every two months? Um, you know, it. I, I kind of have an organic workflow now where all specialty clubs will go in first and then the officers and directors. I, I always save the fun one for last, which is my, my feature issue. Um, but I'll generally just, section it into areas as I start pulling pictures. And uh, I, I, a lot of people hate Facebook. I love it because, you know, have you noticed how talented our members are? Uh, the artwork, the pictures, just, you know, the, the stories that they tell with their pictures. I, I, was, I was working on the Rabbits 101 and it was an article from J.J. Beal about uh, purchasing new stock. And I took a break and kind of went on to Facebook and lo and behold, here's Samantha Sessaman driving home with her brand new blue New Zealand. She she stops in a snowdrift and takes pictures with her rabbit. And I went, oh, there's my cover. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, you know, one quick message later. And, of course, Samantha's flattered. I'm happy because, you know, she made the cover. And it was it was absolutely beautiful. So, you know, the inspiration comes from them. So that's actually the fun part. And I think I have way too much fun at my job than I probably should. And I hope it shows because it really does need to reflect the the membership and the best of the membership, their thoughts and their voices and their directions. So, you know. I, I want it to be a celebration to promote rabbits and cavies because that's why we're doing this. That's such a beautiful message. And we've said before on the podcast that, you know, anyone can become involved in the ARBA in the rabbit and cavy industry. You did it early on. You said, not, you're not selfish, but you said internally, maybe selfishly, you know, I got involved because I could learn more. You could learn by doing. Um, and anyone can do that. that. That's what's really amazing about our industry. And that's, you know, when we look at judges and young judges, like, yeah, you don't have to be doing this for 50 years before your name is on something and you're teaching someone else about, you know, yeah. New Zealand type or a blue New Zealand or getting your first rabbit. So and I, I agree with you on the Facebook thing. Like I have to say, I've, I've been a little jaded lately about it because of, you know, just not rabbit stuff, but you know, it's just, it's hard to listen to and to listen to negativity. It really kind of brings me down, but there is a lot of inspiration on Facebook and our members are contributing a lot. And I love to, I love hearing that, that that serves as an inspiration for you. You're always watching us, right? So um, so if you could offer advice to members that want to contribute, I guess clearly it would be continued to be you know, active on Facebook, but if you could offer advice that would, was maybe more, um, 
more open and transparent. That, so you're not just like digging for it. How would how could members contribute to the ARBA or to the work that you do uh, for the ARBA in our industry? Suggestions. Never never be shy about speaking up. Whether whether it's good or bad. Uh, offer your time and offer your services, offer to learn to write, write for a judge. I mean, it's, you're getting a front row seat to people who have, who have been through the process to become a judge. That's, that's how to learn. You're, you're in this hobby to better the breed, to better yourself, to, to get enjoyment. And to me, the best way to do that is to step up and and make a difference because how satisfying is that? So, you know, we, we have people that come to us with small suggestions. I Just the other day, someone asked, uh, you know, in the new judges and registrars column, can you put their states so that we know where somebody is from? So if they're in our area, we can hire them. Well, how simple and how obvious. So now there are states next to them, to the new judges. Names. Just, but, you know, it just came from somebody saying, hey, wouldn't it be a good idea? So, you know, I, I always want to be open to listening and I always embrace people who want to step up and help. I mean, if, if you, if you want to write an article, my goodness, contact me, I will walk you through it. And I, I will make you look good and I will help. <laughs> yes, you, you will. <laughs> that's, yes. that's my pledge. I, yeah, if you come to me and you write an article, I will make you look good. So that's my pledge. But yeah, the ARBA is run by volunteers and there are people that do extraordinary work. I mean, look at what Ellie Bondi is doing with a library. And, you know, there's just, there's, there's a lot of hands that make this organization what it is. And I'm, I'm a, I'm a part of it, uh, but I'm not the only one. So volunteer. You're an integral part and a, and a very talented part, and, and that's great advice. So, so if you were going to give a plug to how to contact the great Sandra White to, you know, to contribute, um, how can how can members uh, contact you to contribute or to ask or maybe suggest even the smallest things like putting a state next to a brand new judge, which is brilliant. I agree. So, how can we contact you? Domestic Rabbit at Arbazant.net. Um, it's it's on the inside cover of every DR issue. Um, it's also on the website or yeah, find me on Facebook. So that's domestic rabbits at ARBA.net to reach the editor in chief of the amazing domestic rabbits magazine uh, with your contributions or, or, or ideas, you know, whether they're big or small, there's something for everybody. And I think any of us can, can agree to that. So with that said, we talked about DR and what you do to put everything together. Do you actually have a favorite issue of the domestic rabbits magazine? I do. 2020 November December issue that that was the dwarf papillon issue. <laughs> I no, you know really I, wow. I, it, it is it is. I loved it because it had the potential to be utter chaos and it wasn't because I I was busy constructing the magazine that was not featuring the dwarf papillon, uh, working on the feature article and then the news came in that the papillons were passed. I mean Arba's 50th breed and a pretty cool breed at that. I mean the buzz around the papillons they were going to be really big and you could just the buzz in the air and the celebration on Facebook it was it was just incredible and you know and I was a little bit slow that day. I just continued working on the feature article and then I paused and I went, do I even want to consider the insanity of just doing a complete course change? You know, the magazine's almost ready to go to print. And then I did, but I had to contact Eric first. And then I was probably thinking he was going to tell me that I was freaking insane to even consider it. But of course, Eric being Eric, he's hundred percent supportive and the wonderful human he is. He immediately was on board. And so next step was I contacted Maddie Pratt and uh, she was the one who uh, got the Papillons passed. 
along with her team. And uh, I was actually ready for her to tell me it was a freaking insane idea because <laughs> she would be doing most of the heavy lifting at the last minute. So it was a big ask. And so I just kind of, again, Facebook Messenger, timidly just proposed this idea. And the poor girl, she's getting ready to board a plane to go home. And I'm sure she was tired. But, you know, by the time she landed, guess who had a working article, pictures, kick-ass cover, almost everything I needed to do a feature on Arba's newest breed. I mean, how cool is that? It's pretty It's pretty darn cool. And the cover looked amazing, that, that chocolate book. I mean, that was, I mean... Someone, I mean, dwarf happiness are part of my daily, but I was like, whoa, that is a beautiful cover. That rabbit looks amazing. And that makes, and anyone should be proud that that was the 50th breed by just looking at that cover. It was, it was cool. It just, it gave me chills. And you know, I don't, I don't even think Maddie has any idea how amazing she is. I, I hope she does, but she just, she's looking back. She's contributed a lot of articles. She's done the Harlequins. She's done the Tans. She's done the Papillons. I mean, I kind of feel like she's my go-to girl. And I I hope she knows what a rock star she is and how much I appreciate her input. Well, hopefully she listens to this episode to, to hear that. <laughs> she, and I agree. She's a, she's a kind of a quiet supporter. But just like you, you're not, you're not, you're not, like, I remember I've asked you to speak at the, <laughs> the Airbnb banquet in the past. And you're like, oh, and I said, Sandra, you did a great job. Like, you, you know, you're behind the scenes, like Maddie, like, you know, yep. in the trenches, doing the work, making it beautiful. And we all get to enjoy that. And sometimes, unfortunately, we don't give appreciation and gratitude to those people that are that are in those trenches, doing the hard work and, and making those beautiful contributions to our to our industry and our, our ARBA. So very cool nod. So, all right, we've talked a lot about rabbits and your, your incredible involvement from really from the get-go um, in rabbits. But there is a whole other Sandra White. I call you a renaissance woman, you know, a very talented <laughs> woman and you've graced our hobby. But there are other things, believe it or not, besides rabbit magazines and convention catalogs and guidebooks that make up Sandra White. So tell us um, about you beyond this. What do you do? What do you love? Wow. Well, you you probably know this, but I, I actually have a couple of Angora goats now. And uh, I'm I'm learning to spin and I'll be actually going up to a couple of fiber festivals. So that's that's kind of my new thing. I've been knitting for a while. Spinning is relatively new, but I I'm enjoying it more than I thought I would. So yeah. Well, um, your knitting your knitting is not just like basic. I believe you won best in show at the Durham Fair <laughs> not too long ago. Actually, it was like a couple of years ago with yeah. an incredibly beautiful. Was it a was a sweater? It's a sweater. Yes. Yeah, yes. it was gorgeous. Yeah, and you won best in show. So you are no novice when it comes to this. I mean, maybe in terms of years. Sure, but your talent is expressed in every Sandra right way when it comes to looking at that sweater, which one best in show. And I love that you're doing fiber. Um, and Angora Goat's going to be fun. That's like, that's like the, the key to my heart. <laughs> so, so what about your, um, uh, maybe say like your black belt? What, what's going on with that? And <laughs> a lot of yeah. us don't know about uh, I'm, I'm a fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo and uh, first degree black belt in Kempo. And uh, I'm actually, since I've moved out to Georgia, I've, I've not been teaching. So I've, I've kind of retired that, but I do still keep up with my training. Um, I do uh, Ironman competitions. Um, and uh, gosh, I'm, I am back into horseback riding. So in fact, I'm, I'm working with a, uh, a breed of horse called an Andalusian, which is a Spanish bullfighting horse. And she's quite quick on her feet, but there's like moments of brilliance. And I'm going to bring her up through the levels in Versage. So it's going to be a lot of fun to do that. And I also have a halflinger and a couple of minis. So uh, 
I, I rode extensively when I was younger. In fact, I used to exercise racehorses and do rodeo when I was little. Um, uh, actually, it was funny. We got a blue ribbon in ribbon roping when I was 12 years old, mostly because I had a crush on my ribbon roping partner, David Sanders, and he's he never knew that. But yeah, I'd follow him anywhere, my little 12-year-old crush. But we ended up <laughs> winning a buckle at state. <laughs> but yeah, I've always been into horseback riding and then took a hiatus from that. And then when I came back out here, you, we have land to keep horses. And so we do. So yeah, added that to the repertoire. That horse, that ad, the adventure that you're on sounds a little bit like a blue eyed white project <laughs> and your, your particular mare. Kind of. Yes. She's, a little bit of that. <laughs> she's been, she's been in a field and not worked with, so she's a little bit wild, but she's, she's coming around. Well, there's no one better for the, for that challenge <laughs> than, than you. Um, well, you. I'm going to give you a funny story. I'm going to share this with everyone. You know, when this podcast is aired, you're, there's, a, you know, there's going to be like a promo on Facebook with, with your photo. And I, so I got the photo because I texted Eric earlier and I said, Eric, um, I've been stalking Sandra's Facebook for a great photo of her. And there are either two things. They're either A, covered with other people because she's loved and people love to take a photo with her and she's adored. And number two, she's covered in mud or a helmet because she's like a total she-ra of her day. So the photo that we're using is inspired by Eric because he had a clean one of you. And there, there were people like leaning all over you because they love you so much and love that you've done this. So. Thank you, Eric. Well, I am honored. I'm honored. Thank you. All right, I've got one more question for you. And this is something that we ask everyone on our podcast. And uh, I would love for you, metaphorically, or maybe it's a real one, um, describe a perfect day at a rabbit show for Sandra White. Oh, wow. A perfect day. You know, a perfect day to me is everybody getting along. Everybody everybody celebrating a win, whether it's their win or not, everybody discussing a rabbit without personalizing an attribute, um, enjoying enjoying a judge that really gets in just, you know, the judges that every judge has a breed that they love, it's putting their hands on an animal and just celebrating that animal and really giving in-depth comments that are that are intelligent, thoughtful, and helpful to the breeder. So to me, that's the perfect day. Everyone goes home with a smile, whether they won or lost. I love it. And it's not dissimilar to so many stories that we hear or so many <laughs> recollections when we ask that question. It's it's rabbits at the maybe the beginning, but it's the people and the connections and the family and friends that we make along the way that make it all the better. And an education side even better. And you've done so much in the way of education and then presenting it in your Sandra White and Randy Hall uh, <laughs> finesse, which has made it so much more beautiful and making us so much more eager to learn more and be better and learn by doing, which is something that apparently, <laughs> clearly you learned uh, very early on in this pathway. Yes. Yes. I'm not done. We're just going to continue to get better. I love that. That needs to be a quote. I'm not done. <laughs> Sandra White. I'm not done. Well, we can't wait to see more of what you do. It sounds like maybe blood white uh, satin angoras are going to be in our future very soon. Thanks to you and your hard work and dedication. And hopefully you don't have to wait 125 babies before you get the, oh. the first one. But well, <laughs> if, if it is, if it's 250, we know that there will still be an end result and it will be a blood white satin angora. So it will happen. You just got to double down and keep working harder because it's going to happen. It'll, you only don't, yeah, you only fail when you give up. So keep going. Heck yeah. That was, hey, that's Betty Shulak. We were talking about like, the only true failure is a failure to try. So keep Thank on going. 
Yeah, that's right. Well, thank you, Sandra. Thank you, Randy, who didn't join us. Somebody's up there recording his, his album, it sounds like. Um, so thank you both for everything you've done for the ARBA, not only in the United States and North America, but the global rabbit and KB industry. We are a better association and a better industry because of the dedication and many years of, of work that you guys have done and will continue to do. We are lucky thank to you. have you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good night. Thanks. What a great interview, Alan. It's always really enjoyable to see the enthusiasm and the love that our volunteers have for this association and the work that they do to support it. So next time you open a domestic rabbits, if you see something that really catches your eye, which, you know, I'm sure a lot of things will, you know, let Sandra know, um, let the author of an article know that you enjoyed that. It really means a lot to these people who volunteer their time to know that their work and effort is appreciated. So for our education segment, one of the things I wanted to talk about, um, Sandra touched on COD applications as a group, and we get a lot of questions about this. So basically the rules are a COD can have up to five applicants, and those are individual people. Um, for example, people that reside in the same household, people that co-own and show and share all rabbits together, they still have to be listed individually. So, um, you know, if you're talking about maybe two couples, that would be four people on a COD application. So that's something to think about if you're wanting to do it as a group, whether you want to use those five slots with multiple people from the same household or from the same herd, or if you want to spread that out a little further. Also, all of these individuals have to have been ARBA members for a minimum of five years by the time of application. And they do have to be current members of the Breed Specialty Club if it is a new variety application. And yes, um, even in backup CODs, when we roll one over, as we just have with the Champagne Netherland Dwarfs, I will go back and reconfirm that those memberships have been maintained or that they are current. All of these must also be adult members at the time of application. We do not allow youth members to be on COD applications. We know that youth members contribute a lot and um, often are raising and working on these new breeds and varieties, but there's just a big burden of time and expense. There's commitments, you know, years in the future, and we don't want to put that on our youth exhibitors and youth members. But Youth can be part of this because when it gets to the application and the notification of first presentation, we need to have five affidavits from five members who are not part of the COD group or in the COD group's household to submit letters confirming that they are raising this new breed and variety. So we can at that time accept uh, a letter from a youth member of the ARBA stating that they are one of the official breeders and they are supporting that COD. So that's a way that a youth member can kind of help out with that. One person from the COD group will be the spokesperson that's designated at the time of application. That is the person that I communicate with. And that is the person who I talk to on presentation day to let them know if the presentation has passed or failed what our findings were, and our recommendations for next year. Now, should that person not be able to attend, they can designate another member of that group. So another thing to think about if you're considering doing this is maybe um, there's something that could make it difficult for you to be at a convention. Um, perhaps you're you know, thinking about taking a new job and you're not sure what kind of vacation you may have. It can be helpful to put other people on that COD so that you can have someone there who is part of your team 
who can carry out those duties, who can, you know, bring the animals to table, who can certify those animals, and who can come and sit and talk to the committee afterwards. What Sandra talked about, um, and I love, we both love that she was very candid about insisting that her line be the one that be used. And that's a really important point when we talk about animals coming up to the table, because one of the things the committee looks for is consistency in those animals. Now, we know that not every animal is going to be a carbon copy of another, but what we're looking for when we are examining a new breed or variety to see if they are ready to become recognized is a group of animals that is fairly consistent. We don't want to see what we call in some breeds a group of you know parts animals. We don't want to see one animal that has a great body, but um, maybe the fur is coarse and thin, or it doesn't have a very good head and bone. And that's next to an animal that's got a great head, but is really flat in body type. And that's next to an animal that has very mediocre type, but has great color. Um, we want to see, you know, pretty consistent, good quality on all of these animals. So that's why, like she said, it's important for people to really work together as a group. This can be done as a distance, uh, as they did. Um, I know the Blue Band Door photo, which we just passed, was a group effort between two breeders in Wisconsin and Texas, but it does take a lot of communication. Fortunately, that's something we can do a little bit better now. We can, you know, instantly take pictures and send to each other. We can take videos in the barn and video chat, but everyone really needs to be on the same page about what they're breeding toward. And it's very helpful to start with one line <clears throat> or one group of animals that is fairly consistent and work towards the same goals in breeding. So we see that consistency when the animals come to the table. So I think that's a really good point Sandra made. Clearly, it was very successful to them. And that's something that I would encourage everyone who's considering a COD to really think about. That's such a great point. And, you know, we often think about consistency and we think about good quality. But as you just said, if you go in there with rabbits that are maybe inconsistent, more so in faults, one of the jobs of the Sanders Committee is then to recommend to the COD holder, hey, this was a good presentation, this was a bad presentation, these are our recommendations regardless. And the consistent faults, let's use head, for example, say we're, you know, doing some kind of a large headed, like a Lopry, for example, um, you know, that the heads were all consistently faulted, but they all had good bodies, or they all had good, you know, ears, or they all had good color, whatever it was. But if their maybe their head is small, maybe their fur is wrong, or their bone is light, but they're all consistent, I mean, that makes it a lot easier um, to pick apart and probably less likely to be ultimately scrutinized heavily because those are things that can be, you know, corrected as a group, you know, when they're all targeting the same faults, just like targeting the same, you know, positives. Yeah, absolutely. And there have been presentations, um, the Lilac Polish was one, where we all agreed that the bodies are pretty good, the color is pretty good, but across the board, heads needed some work. So that gives breeders one thing to work on, one thing to really select hard for in those next couple rounds of breedings, because there's only a year between presentations. That's a couple generations, um, you know, if you're kind of pushing it. So you want, you don't want to have to fix something different on every rabbit. You want to have, you know, a consistent group of rabbits where maybe you can work on improving one trait. 
And, and that's what we're going to look for too, because we're not going to give you a list that says, well, you need to fix this on this rabbit and this and this rabbit, this and that's rabbit. We're just going to tell you they're very inconsistent. And if that's severe enough, that will be a cause for a failed presentation because it's clear that this group of animals, this breeder variety is not consistent enough and needs a lot more work before it should be recognized. Such a great point. Um, wow, that's actually brilliant to think about it on that perspective. I never turned it around like that. So thanks, Sandra, for inspiring that. And thanks, Bryony, for bringing up those great points um, because it's such a labor of love and it's an arduous one. And just because you put people together doesn't always make it easier. But with these notions in mind, it actually could really weigh in, in your benefit, in your end goals. So uh, with that said, Bryony, I think you've got a great quote to share with us uh, tonight. Uh, Want to go for it? Sure. Um, this one reminded me of pretty much everything Sandra has done, um, from those broken satin angoras to the domestic rabbits and all of her other accomplishments and um, volunteer roles she's taken on the ARBA. Success is not a matter of mastering subtle, sophisticated theory, but rather of embracing common sense with uncommon levels of discipline and persistence. This is from Patrick Lencioni. I love it. Such a great nod to Sandra. And again, thank you, Sandra, for joining us tonight, our editor-in-chief of the amazing Domestic Rabbits magazine, which we all look forward to receiving every two months as an ARB member. So if you're not an ARB member, you've got to get to this magazine and you can do so by, of course, joining the ARBA, arba.net. And uh, as we say every time, our quote is, talk rabbits and talk habies. See everyone next week, and thanks again for listening. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.